and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I'm joined by my friend Tyler Malone for a discussion of Stanley Kubrick's Eyes Wide Shut. Tyler is a writer I admire, and I am happy to have finally managed to get him on the podcast. He is writing an entire book on horror, and part of this large project is talking about Stanley Kubrick, which will allow us to do a series of conversations. Eyes Wide Shut is a story about the moral corruption of elites at the turn of the millennium, and therefore it is very topical now when it is on the front pages everywhere in America. But it is also a deep and serious reflection on the character of our predicament, on the trouble we have with finding meaning in love and in defining ourselves through love. So thanks a lot for joining me, Tyler. Thank you. And please introduce yourself for our audience. Yeah, my name is Tyler Malone. I'm a writer, editor, and English professor. I mostly do book criticism and film criticism. I write for the LA Times, for Literary Hub, for Lapham's Quarterly, Poetry Magazine, a bunch of places. Yes, the reason I admire you is that you are a cultural critic. You write about prestigious things as well as ordinary things about the popular and the unpopular, and you always manage to come up with some insight. When I read your thoughts, I get a double sense of recognition. First of all, of course, there's Tyler. You have a distinctive writing style, gentle, but often penetrating as well, which can seem incisive. And on the other hand, I get a sense of this phenomenon. I have some awareness of it. I didn't quite put it together in the way you articulated, but I get the sense that I'm recognizing something about America here. And I guess that's what culture is supposed to do. Now, before we get to the conversation, I'll have to say a few words about the movie and to overview the plot. Eyes Wide Shut came out in 99 in accordance with the schedule and planning Kubrick himself made, but he was dead by that time. Within days of having finished editing, he suddenly had a heart attack and died. So we don't know what he might have made of the popular and the critical reaction. This was a hit. The star power and the fame of Kubrick and the notoriety of the long productions, the difficulties, the fame Kubrick had as a master craftsman, a man in control of every aspect of his movies, all contributed to the enduring success of the movie and its sterling box office receipts. It didn't go so well over with critics, however, who either didn't see what it is that Kubrick wanted to show them, or they weren't eager to follow given the way he set the mood. The combination of shock and fascination is perhaps the best way to begin to think about the works of Stanley Kubrick. This starts with his stars. He picked the hottest couple in Hollywood at the time. Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman were young, beautiful, celebrated. On the cover of magazines, the world seemed to be at their feet. But he does not treat them like golden gods. Instead, he has them play a conventional wasp couple admittedly in Manhattan, admittedly upper middle class, but still regular people, Bill and Alice Harford. It's mid-December, the Christmas season, before the millennium comes, and they begin at a Christmas party, where they apparently don't know anybody. They are surrounded by richer, more glamorous, more successful people surrounded in mystery. They're only there because Bill's boss, Ziegler, invited him and it seems like he's trying to make nice, but also that he feels this may be his entrance into some better future. They both seem to face some erotic temptation at the party, but escape, it would seem, only that 
Later, they have a conversation about love and instead of being the happy couple we want them to be, they get into a fight. Alice confesses that she has sexual fantasies, not that she had ever cheated on him, but this suffices to undermine his confidence and his sense of who he is. And this sends him spiraling. So after hearing this confession, he just can't get out of his head. He's called to see a client, since he's a doctor for the rich, he's on call. And he also catches up with a friend and he gets into some trouble that night in Manhattan, up until he ends up at the most shocking part of the movie, an orgy. This bespeaks a secret society that indulges in these shocking pleasures of furious copulating under Venetian masks. But he doesn't get involved, instead he lands in danger as he's exposed and yet he manages to escape. But after that everything gets darker in his life. There are threats, there are bad things happening to people he knew. He feels that his very family life is endangered and so eventually confesses to his wife and they try to reconcile. So this turns out to be a very unsatisfying conclusion that makes us wonder why did the story start where it started? Why does it end where it ends? In what way is this a completed action? It's hard to understand, but it's obviously about a perfect couple that's nevertheless unhappy. And so you can see that's why it's so puzzling. Perfect people should be happy. We want them to be happy. Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, how are they not perfect? Nevertheless, there's something very dangerous in the way they chase after happiness. And this is apparently connected to the dangers posed by elites that double up as a secret society indulging dangerous fantasies. Yes. A good way to start off, I think, is having read your piece when I come out soon. The first two sentences of your piece, you sort of dive into Epstein, and obviously Jeffrey Epstein is in the news. And you start off the piece by saying, we never knew what crimes Jeffrey Epstein committed and encouraged in his disturbing adventures among America's millionaires. Now that he's dead, we're not likely ever to know. I thought that was a great, really interesting place to start. And of course, you're right. In terms of specific acts and specific victims, his death has sort of made the truth unattainable. But as I was reading it, there was a little whisper sort of in the back of my head. We do know. And we've always kind of known. You know, these crimes are shocking, but they're also so banal. These crimes have always been in front of our faces. We just are often looking away, right? I don't mean to call them banal and to diminish them or excuse them, but I think it's important to remind ourselves how complicated this is. It's so commonplace, this moral rot, and yet it's obviously still frightening and monstrous to us as it should be. And so there's this uncanniness of the familiarity and the horror, and I do look at this film as a horror film. And I think most people don't, you know, sort of build as an erotic thriller, which is, of course, hilarious because it's not very erotic <laughs> at all. It's sort of the opposite of erotic, which I think is what makes it maybe the best movie about sex. We too often only look at sex as this erotic thing, which of course it is on some level, but it's also so much else. And sex is often banal and ritualistic and this going through the motions thing that is enjoyable, of course, usually, hopefully, but also it's not as perfect and beautiful and sexy as movies usually depict it. And that's what I find so beautiful about this film, but also so horrifying. Yes, we know and then we don't know. This all makes sense, this terrible scandal surrounding Jeffrey Epstein. And on the other hand, it's terribly repugnant. 
Our elites are all of them apparently involved in this. Bill Gates, of all people, was doing something with Jeffrey Epstein by way of charity. What possibly could they have had in common? The prestigious supposedly scientific MIT lab was also involved with taking money from him and all sorts of chicanery that led to some resignations up top. And of course, Bill Clinton and Donald Trump were both somehow involved with Epstein. What is wrong with all these elites? Why cannot they see there's something nearly monstrous about this guy? And of course, the press didn't do or say anything about it either. There's mystery, there's secrecy, and this incredible, inescapable conclusion that for all their superiority and sitting up top of world history, our elites are somehow super vulnerable to sexual perversions. And just like in Eyes Wide Shut, all of it is silenced. All of it ends up in secrecy again because Jeffrey Epstein is now dead. We don't ever need to know what the hell happened. And at the same time, as you said, haven't we always known that these terrible evil things happen? That there's sex slavery, that there are rapes of teenage girls, all of the stuff alleged against Jeffrey Epstein that's so prescient in Eyes Wide Shut. Well, yes, we know, but if our elites fail us, we feel powerless. What can you or I or anyone else do about all this stuff? And then the question is, why did our elites fail us? Why did these people prove so vulnerable? And here comes the other thing you said. For a generation, we were told that sex is sexy. This is going to be some great revelation of a future happiness. What happens if that disappoints people? Well, we have therapy for that too. You should spice up your sex life. You should try some role play. Well, what does that lead to? If you indulge that desire, what might it lead you to? What might it lead elites towards if they feel that publicly therapeutic ideologies are failing them and they need to look for their happiness in more dangerous, darker places? Well, I find that tension is exactly what's so interesting about the film. So in an essay that I wrote for Lit Hub about horror, I call horror a ritual without a religion. And I think sex is also a ritual without a religion. And I think there's an interesting mirror between sex and horror and their sort of ritualistic impulses that are anti-religious, or maybe not anti-religious, but the religion is sort of squashed down, especially in a more atheistic or agnostic time like the one in which we live. So for me, Eyes Wide Shut sort of weds those two things so nicely. Yes, we want love in some way to be redemptive. We all want love to last forever. We all personally expect from love that it will help to define us, but also we want it to reward us. We want to discover ourselves through love, but at the same time we want to discover that what we are and who we are is good. Love reveals to us unexpected possibilities, all sorts of fantasies that we want fulfilled. And this might lead to happiness, but it might lead to madness if the fantasies themselves are mad, or on the other hand, if we simply cannot get them fulfilled. So the desires stirred by and revealed by this notion of sexy sex could turn to very dark passions. There's a lot of frustration and therefore anger and therefore self-hatred and guilt and shame that can all come out of this simple desire for perfect love. Further, as you astutely point out, there is something incredibly conventional about this fantasy. It used to be in all the movies in the 80s and the 90s. It used to be a daring, bold declaration that transgression will lead to happiness and will all be sex positive 
as soon as we remove the stigma of shame from consensual love? Well, it turns out, no, it doesn't work that way. And instead of that, we have the Me Too scandals. We have all sorts of revelations of violence and ugliness coming out of this sunny desire, out of this burning passion. And at the same time, we see the anger that it leads to because of disappointment. Now, what's so strange about Kubrick is that he neither satisfies the desire nor the transformation of desire into revenge. He's somewhere in between. It's a dissatisfaction. It's a desire that is not satisfied, but it's still the desire there. We do not even get the chance of forgetting about it, which both satisfaction and revenge would offer. So if I get a sudden yearning for ice cream and then I have that ice cream, I don't just get the pleasure out of it, but I forget that I had that painful desire in the first place. Kubrick insists on remembering that painful desire, that sense of incompleteness to say that that is who we are essentially. It's not a mistake or an accident. It's who we are. Whatever lives we live, we're always also somewhere else dissatisfied with what we've actually got. For sure. Life, even with all its successes, especially because of the successes, is just not enough. So desire is just like you said, somewhere between religion and horror. Religion says that our desires have it right. This world cannot fully be our home, and only in heaven will our true father satisfy all our longings and justify all our suffering. But of course, that would not work on post-Christian elites. And on the other hand, there's the possibility of horror. What if you discover who you truly are by these desires you didn't even suspect were inside of you, and you give in to them, and you want to fulfill them, and the results turn out to be terrifying? Right. So you hit upon a number of things that I find really interesting about desire within the movie, which is that I think desire is three things in the movie. Number one is that it is unknowable, right? When you get the scene where Alice says to him, you're very sure of yourself, aren't you? And Bill yeah. says, no, I'm sure of you. And then she starts laughing with one of the, to me, that's the real horror of the movie. The orgy scene, everything else, the way she laughs at him. We know he's wrong in a way because he is assuming that she doesn't have these fantasies and of course she does, so he's wrong. But we instantly feel bad for him because he's so naive and he doesn't know. And that laugh is sort of the first time he's seen the maw of the oblivion, like just staring into this callousness. But of course, it's a justifiable reaction because it is silly that he doesn't recognize that she might have fantasies. So desire is unknowable. That's the first thing. The second thing is that it's unfulfillable. Your ice cream example was perfect because even when we do quote unquote fulfill a desire, there's still an emptiness. We're still left without nothing ever satiates that actual desire. And so it's unknowable, it's unfulfillable. But ultimately, I think what Kubrick is trying to tell us, I don't think it's necessarily a didactic movie in that way, but I think at least the strongest undercurrent is that desire on top of those two things is also just banal. And that it all comes from this same place. The banality of our desire, even in the grotesque forms that we're talking about, even when it gets dangerous, even when it maybe goes beyond, there's still a lack of an imagination that sits at the center of human sexual fantasies. We're all sort of haunted by the same old ghosts, even if they wear slightly different sheets. <laughs> and so every sexual fantasy, every desire, every congress bears the traces of those similar structures, family romances. I could go off and be boringly Freudian or whatever, but 
that is sort of the core of psychoanalysis, that the most deviant fantasies and the most vanilla desires are created by the same phenomenon. That sexual desire, no matter how seemingly perverse or not perverse, is reducible to those same simple and similar structures. Yes, I think that's a very good introduction to this story. And I think dramatization is what allows these banal desires to reveal themselves in a way that's not banal. You're right that Kubrick is not some kind of moralist writing a tract, and instead he discloses gradually through the plot of the story what he has learned about eroticism and the dangers it presents. We primarily think of Kubrick's mastery of cinema as calculation. He's almost never spontaneous, but often fascinating. And so we start with Bill and Alice going to a Christmas party. Notice that first of all they leave their daughter behind, the innocent fruit of their natural love. Why would they even go to a party where they don't know anybody? Well, they're chasing after glamour. Unlike their comfortable Manhattan home, an ideal family setting, there's no Christmas spirit at this party. But in the element of glamour, they explore their sexual fantasies. Alice has daddy issues, to put it in the banal way you mentioned before. Her temptation is a Hungarian aristocrat with a fancy name, who is greying, who is handsome, an elegant dancer, morally corrupt and alluring sexually, and old enough to be her father, of course. And this is the first hint that aristocracy holds some attraction we get into the movie. There will be more later. But for the meantime, Alice resists this temptation even though she is drunk and flirtatious. Just like Alice is a passive object of love, so also is Bill. Two bright young things hit on him, and this is very plausible. It's Tom Cruise. He's not much of a lover, he's more of a beloved instead. This is also the first time when somebody mentions paradise in the movie. That's what the girls offer him. Now, Bill seems to be playing coy here with these girls, but I don't think that's the case. I think he's genuinely confused because he has never had the experience that they have as lovers. He doesn't have that kind of desire inside of him. The lover may feel that he cannot live without his beloved, but the beloved certainly can live without the lover. At any rate, we don't see how this turns out because Bill is interrupted. His boss, Ziegler, needs him. And again, we see this combination you mentioned of the outrageous and the banal. A prostitute just happened to overdose in his boss's private rooms above the party. Adultery, prostitution and drugs are very banal things. But also shocking, this woman almost lost her life because of a strange desire that this guy is indulging. Bill and Alice may be looking for glamour at Ziegler's party, but Ziegler is rich enough to know that glamour doesn't do much for you, and so instead he's dealing with hookers and cocaine. Presumably Ziegler wanted the prostitute Mandy because she's very attractive, but she had no such desire for him, her desire was for drugs. And then his desire too is stranger than something like being attracted to a beautiful woman. His desire is for the mastery he has. Her desire for drugs almost overpowers and kills her, but it does nothing dangerous to him. He has power. We're all decent people, even or especially Bill, so we make nothing of this. But we should pay attention to it, because the combination of accident and essence is what Kubrick is all about here. Bill just happens to be at this party, the prostitute just happens to overdose. But these accidents show the limits of mastery and therefore the way desire tends to overpower everything, including rational control through medicine or power. This is the first image of desire we get in the movie and that is no accident, that was plotted by Kubrick. Desire kills you. Ziegler is literally the master of dream and death, the strange powers of the drugs. But he also has the advantage of social class. 
a matter that should involve a hospital and the police is going to be dealt with discreetly because Ziegler is Bill's client and that gives him power. Ziegler seems to be above morality and politics. His desires are essentially lawless and they are therefore perfectly contrasted with Bill's Ivy League education and the reputation for respectability that brings. It turns out he's not an upper-class American, he's a servant. Nevertheless, Bill and Alice escape and you think, none of this strange elitist form of self-debasement. Let's go back to middle-class respectability, the sanctity of home, the innocence of the child and all that. But no, instead you get a fight. Bill and Alice are half-naked on the bed and instead of being amorous, they get into a quarrel that turns out to lead Bill to a crisis. Because Alice, as you point out, humiliates him. I thought the exact same thing that you're thinking until I just rewatched it again. It's actually not that night, it's the next night. I thought it was that night too. I thought they go home from the party and it happens that night. But actually, she starts undressing in the mirror and then it cuts to black and then it's the next day that they actually have that conversation, which I didn't remember at all. And I've seen the movie so many times. And I was sort of shocked by that because there is some implication that they may have had sex that night then, even though they don't show it to you or anything like that. You're right, this problem apparently lingers, it's on their minds, and then it gets in the way of their intimacy. Neither of them gave in to his temptation or did anything that would betray the other, but the problem of desire itself has arisen. The crisis is precipitated because Bill trusts Alice. And how does she prove that she is not trustworthy? By being honest. <laughs> shocking idea. By, wow. by being trustworthy, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> It turns out that you can't be too honest with people who trust you. Alice just reveals too much. She in a way takes revenge for the desire she had to deny herself at the party by revealing to Bill another desire. She tells him a story about this time years back when they had been vacationing with all the sophisticated people on Cape Cod. She says she had sexual fantasies about a Navy lieutenant she merely glimpsed briefly, and this was such a powerful passion inside of her that she was seriously contemplating abandoning her family, but the guy disappeared. Chance interrupted what Eros might have done, which Eros started by chance in the first place. By the way, the Navy lieutenant in all that dress uniform, there's another aristocratic suggestion for you. And this wounds Bill in a terrible way, despite the fact that she had never done anything. And in a way, even more than the humiliating laughter with which she withered away his confidence. The problem seems to be that she never had that desire for him. And he doesn't even know what that desire might be. Alice seems to want to teach him a lesson that he should somehow appreciate her more or compensate her for the fact that she has to deny desires that he doesn't even know exist. But... That creates a crisis because now he knows that he doesn't even know what desire is, not even in the one case that really and truly matters, his wife. So despite her intentions, the lesson Alice teaches Bill is that desire is not that which leads to a happy family. It's not that which makes for their home and their child. Something else. She doesn't present to him desire as the fulfillment of the American dream, the middle class morality and all that. Desire is a lawbreaker. It doesn't make families, it breaks families. Bill could have told himself that whatever his boss Ziegler does or that prostitute and the drugs, that's not me, that's not a problem for my family. But now it turns out that it is and so he has to go do his soul searching somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, so lots of stuff to respond to. First of all, I find it really interesting. I've never really thought of it this way about the lover and the beloved. 
you're totally right. And the, what's really fascinating about that is that it's inverted from what we normally think in art. You know, usually it's the woman that becomes the object and is the beloved, right? In you know art history, and in this, there's a subversion where he's the beloved, he's the love object. So much so that even in the first scene, she, the actual first line in the script, even though it's not the first line in the movie, is her asking something about whether she looks good or not. And he's not even looking at her. I think he's looking at himself in the mirror. He's <laughs> getting himself ready in some way. And she's like, but you're not even looking at me. So I think he is used to being the enamored object. But what's so fascinating is then he realizes he is not the enamored object that he thought he was. That his wife, the one who is supposed to be giving him that loving gaze more than anyone, is actually... It's not that she's not. Throughout the film, she talks about that she loves him. And it doesn't even seem like it's not that she doesn't enjoy their sex. I don't think there's any necessarily... But certainly she has these desires for something more. Something that he could not have even imagined she would have. And so that destroys him in some way. It sets him off on these, you know, adventures. But then the other thing that you brought up is being a Christmas party. This movie is such a strange movie because it is sort of a Christmas movie. But if it is a Christmas movie, I would call it an Xmas movie. Maybe it's the best Xmas movie because there's no Jesus anywhere. There's no candles. There's no angels. None of the Christian Christmas. It's a very commercial Christmas, consumerist Christmas. It's Christmas lights. Literally almost every scene is lit by Christmas lights to sort of glow and then christmas trees and christmas shopping it's all the xmas jesus is not the reason for the season in this movie right yeah um, exactly and that's what's so fascinating because then there is if there's one christian moment in this movie it's when the mysterious woman you know sacrifices herself but i think coming after that you know his wife laughing at him when he says that he has faith in her that to me is the universe and God and whatever else laughing at you for having certainty in anything. The fact that he has some sort of certainty is what the movie, the world of the movie finds hilarious and sad, but also hilarious, tragic and comic. It's both. So then by the time she maybe sacrificed herself for him, of course, we don't know if it's her. You mean Mandy sacrificing herself for Bill, the prostitute he had saved from an overdose. There's some confusion about her identity, right? They're actually played by two different actresses, which I find fascinating. And there's other little clues to that it might not actually be Mandy that was the mysterious woman. But there are lots of clues that hint that it is. So, you know, you're sort of torn. But I think it puts a whole different spin on that sacrifice that maybe, I mean, I love Ziegler as towards the end says Bill is just jerking off to this idea of her sacrificing herself for him. And I like that even that sacrifice is this weird desire that he has that maybe is also, once again, this banal classic sacrifice desire, right? That, oh, someone's going to love me enough to save me. It's certainly a very beloved desire to want to be loved so much that someone will sacrifice themselves for you. And so I think that's that weird battle going on between Christian impulses, pagan impulses, atheistic impulses. And the movie, I think, is none of the above, but there's this undercurrent of this sort of almost religious war going on. You're right. The Christmas setting of the movie is all about spiritual warfare, and the story is framed by the Christmas party at the beginning and then gifts at the end. And so we wonder, has the season been saved? This mysterious woman who saves Bill's life at the orgy, maybe by sacrificing her own, we don't know for sure, that seems like a recognizably Christian sacrifice, as you said. 
what does it amount to? Well, we have to try to figure it out. But otherwise, the deserted streets at night and the elites are a spiritual wasteland alike. These elites are living out what Nietzsche said when he said that God is dead. There is nothing left for people to believe in. And so we see indeed pagan rituals orchestrated anew. And Bill got himself into this trouble by his wife's truth-telling. She either should have shut up or she should have loved him more in a sacrificial way, but because of what she did, he can't deal with it, and so he is sucked into this strange, dangerous new world. Alice had the experience of the lover, which is a secret. Bill didn't even know about it until she told him. And the character of that experience is something overpowering comes out of you and sends you to something else, to someone else, without your choosing it, without respect for rationality and schedules and respectability. Bill's experience is primarily that of the beloved, now rejected inexplicably. This is why he's the protagonist and not her. He is now undergoing things that she had already gone through. The sense of shame and powerlessness and being moved towards you know not what, that at the same time promises to be somehow wonderful, to finally make visible the invisible inside of you. Love's bafflement for the beloved is a puzzle. How could somebody behave in the way they are behaving? That somebody is the lover, not the beloved. It is strange because it happens in a stranger, not in oneself. Only now does Bill realize that he wants to be loved, as you put it, and that ultimately will mean something to do with sacrifice, that greatest love imaginable. Since he thinks of love as that which brings others to him rather than that which brings him to others, he is strangely open to the possibility of Christianity. So the story dramatizes, as you said, these possibilities of Christianity, paganism and atheism, and they're all involved in Bill's quest for paradise, which seems ironic the way it's mentioned in the movie, but it's actually literally true since that's what we all want out of love. That's what sends him on his quest away from his home to the cold night in Manhattan. Yeah, the New York that he walks out into is such a fascinating place because it is so, I mean, knowing that Kubrick is so meticulous about his stagecraft, the fact that it looks kind of shabby is sort of amazing. If it were any other director, you might think, oh, this director just didn't make a good New York on a soundstage in Britain. But Kubrick's a very meticulous way in which the New York becomes very dreamlike because it feels uncanny in the same way I've said other things are in the movie. It's both recognizably New York, but there's something off. You know, the same is true for Christmas. The same is true for so much stuff. It's recognizably one thing, but it's somewhat off, and we don't know why or what, but it's making us feel something uncomfortable. I think this movie is so similar to one particular scene in The Shining, Kubrick's more conventional horror film, even though I think maybe Eyes Wide Shut is the scarier of the two, and that is Wendy's running down the corridor from her husband. So the horror there is, is actual, right? It's a guy with an axe that is coming after you, and she runs down a corridor and sees a either dog or bear, different people think it's different things. In the book, it's a dog, but it kind of looks more like a bear in the movie. A guy in a furry suit bending over and seeming like he's giving a guy in a tuxedo a blowjob. And then they both recognize that someone's in the corridor and look at Wendy. And when they look at Wendy, they look at you, the viewer, and look through you. And so many film people that I know who love The Shining talk about that moment as such an informative moment for them on how movies can affect you. Because it's one of those scenes where you feel, especially if you saw it when you were younger, you 
feel them looking through the TV screen or the movie screen at you, implicating you in this horror. But what's weird is there's not anything technically evil or wrong that's going on. I mean, you could say it's deviant behavior or something, uh, you know, depending on your views of sexuality and whatnot. But it's a guy in a furry suit giving a blowjob. That's all. There's nothing wrong with what's happening. But for so many people, it's the creepiest scene in the movie. And I think everything that happens in that scene, the furry, the fancy dressed man, the illicit dalliance, the coitus interruptus, the underlying horror of queerness and deviancy, desire, how it stares into you, and also that it's horrifying without really having any horror. Eyes Wide Shut is that moment made to be three hours, stretched out like Cassidy. In the way, you know, of course it would be, because time gets lost in dream states, and if anything, I'd watch that as a dream state. And so this one moment that has horrified a generation of filmgoers becomes his final film in a way. I love the horror and sexiness and uncanniness of that, that we recognize it, but we don't recognize it. There's something wrong with it, but there's nothing wrong with it. The same is true of the, you know, not to jump ahead too much in the plot, but when he does finally get to that orgy, for all we know, nothing is really going wrong. It's sort of this boring, banal orgy with people in masks. I mean, it's interesting aesthetically, but it's not interesting in a sexual or erotic way. It's just boring sex, people dancing naked, people walking around. There's an assumption that these women are, they seem of age, they seem adult. Hugler later claims that they're prostitutes, so they're being paid to be there. They're not sex slaves or anything. And so the question is, what is so dangerous about this party? Now, of course, there's the hint that maybe they end up killing this woman. So obviously there's some danger that lurks. But it's all unseen and mostly unstated. And that's what I find really interesting, that it's so much unstated horror. There's a horror producer from the 1940s, Val Luton, made RKO's horror division. They were trying to battle the universal horror model, which was getting moviegoers to come in droves. Luton, he wanted to do horror slightly differently. First of all, he didn't have the budget. <laughs> but secondly, he thought he could do something a little more interesting. So whereas the classic universal creature feature formula was to scare by utilizing horrifying visuals, they had an exquisite makeup for all, you know, for Frankenstein, Wolfman, all that. He wanted to not show the monster, not show the violence. And so his off-quoted formula for horror, is this is his quote, he wants a love story, three scenes of suggested horror, and one scene of actual violence fade out it's all over in 70 minutes. If you're taking that formula, I think Eyes Wide Shut follows it to a T, except in the time frame. Obviously, like I said, it's stretched out three hours, as it would be in a dream. But he's basically making a value. The horror is never shown, and it's actually almost not even horror. It's terror. That unknowable and unseeable horror. You're not faced with, I mean, you do go to a morgue and see a dead body. But for the most part, you're not faced with violent and gross, grotesque things. It's mood and menace. And I think that's what's more scary. I think in most horror movies, if you have the gruesomeness without the mood, you don't have a good horror movie. You cannot have any gruesomeness. You can have no violence in a horror movie. And if you can get that menace and that mood right, it'll be scarier than anything else. Here, none of the angry stuff happens. None of the stuff you see in The Shining. But indeed, there is this strange, that lingering scene that you mentioned where you're thinking, oh my god, this is what? You're right, Eyes Wide Shut is a psychological horror, it's about dread, it's about anxiety, about fears that we cannot identify with an object that causes them. 
We'll cover the shining in our next conversation and show how anger rather than eros can become the cause of tragedy and of horror and why that leads to so much more violence. Wendy in The Shining seems innocent and Trouble goes looking for her. In Eyes Wide Shut, Bill, who is sort of innocent himself, has to go looking for Trouble. It's not at all obvious what the problem is and why it is urgent. We see Bill in some ways trying to go on with life, going to work, going to call on his patients, even catching up with his old friend from college. The first real sign of trouble is he tries to pick up a hooker. He wouldn't have done that if something hadn't shaken him inside as to what does desire mean. It's a chance encounter and he has no skill nor any flair. He's too shy to even commit adultery like a man. He's interrupted by a call from his wife and he gives up and goes away. You see here that he is trying to become a lover. This is what men do who have sexual passions they cannot or will not satisfy legally. Take prostitutes. And of course prostitutes cannot be expected to love him and that would make him the active rather than the passive partner in the relationship. But it fails. And we begin to suspect that maybe he's become impotent. Mm-hmm. There's so many reverberations between this movie and other movies and other books. But one that I find fascinating that, I, that no one talks about is So in the 1970s, when he was starting to think about making this movie, he actually originally wanted Woody Allen as the main character, which is insane and amazing. And he wanted to set it in Dublin, which, I mean, if you're going to have a Jewish man playing a couple in Dublin, wandering around at night, I can't imagine that Kubrick would not have made the connection to Ulysses. And even in the version that we do have, I think there are still reverberations of that Ulysses uh, milieu there. You know, a couple wandering through night town, right? And also, Alice's final word, fuck, always reminds me of Molly's final yes. So I think that recognizing him as this Leopold Bloom character, this naive, bumbling, wanting to have desires, wanting to also have fantasies and have illicit sexual dalliances, but not being able to, always failing... You know, instead being this character that can never get anywhere, can never do anything. He goes so many places, but what does he do in that night? He does nothing. He's you. He's us. He's just watching. Indeed, this may be why his problem is always nagging at him. Whatever he tries, he fails at. Failure keeps him going, and it makes him a ghost haunting this empty Manhattan, and he is himself haunted. Again, it would seem by chance, but in fact, it obeying the necessity in the sequence of the plot, Bill runs into the bar where his friend Nick Nightingale is playing. He had run into Nick at the Christmas party. Again, it would seem by chance. But Nick is important because he is himself a strange kind of lover. Bill envies Nick because Nick just dropped out of the Ivy League way of life for the sake of his love, jazz music. Now it turns out Nick is in one way a disappointment since he also settled into some boring middle class life. But he has insight into some strange other world. He is the man who introduces Bill to the orgy. Nick went with desire over respectability and that's what makes him the proper introduction to the full break with respectability. Nick tells Bill about his walk on the wild side, how he was hired to play blindfolded at a costume party that doubles up as an orgy. 
And so Bill gets to Paradise, this shop where he has to buy a costume in the middle of the night. And instead of just making this late night transaction outside of opening hours, he runs into the first crazy example of the world of Unleashed Desire. He wants to buy a cape, he says, but the proprietor tells him you're gonna need a mask too. As though he knew about the orgy and the entire conspiracy behind it. Right, that is one of the most fascinating things. You know, we're circling back to what we started with, which is Epstein. You know, when people think of this movie and compare it to Epstein, they think about the orgy scene, cult of rich men, secretly having pagan sex orgies. But like I said earlier, you know, nothing really happens at the orgy. The real connection to Epstein is this costumer who seems to be, at least, certainly by the second time we see him later, selling his underage daughter out for sex. Weirdly, because the whole movie is doubled, the characters are all doubled of each other, every party is a double of a different party, it's all set up to rhyme. Dreams rhyme with reality, and that scene rhymes with all the other scenes. There's all these rhymes with the party, and I think the party becomes more scary and illicit because of this costumer, and there's this weird subtext that I think lingers into the party and makes the party that much more menacing, even though nothing necessarily evil goes on at the party that we know of. Yes, this is an important episode precisely because it doesn't have much to do with the plot. Tom Cruise just needs a costume to conceal himself, but what is unconcealed there is more important. The two scenes set at the costumers, before and after the orgy, are one a farce and the other something more disturbing. From the beginning we see that there are these men pursuing the costumer's daughter and they are old and she's underage and this is at least somewhat worrisome. And her father seems to be indignant and he's going to run to her rescue, but in the sequel it turns out he's actually super eager to prostitute her to them. Something very dangerous is unleashed by desire, and the girl herself throws herself at Tom Cruise, at least, in an ostentatious way, so it seems like everybody's going crazy with Eros. Eros has a strange power of revealing ugliness. First, Ziegler turned out to be not just a glamorous boss, but also a guy involved with hookers and drugs. Then Alice, Bill's wife, also turned out to be not just the ideal wife and mate, but also a woman with dangerous desires. And Nick Nightingale himself, the idealist jazz man, turns out also to be involved with an orgy. And now the costumer and his daughter also seem to be involved in a conspiracy and in this debasing eroticism. And this is Bill's experience of the erotic longings of others, including Nick, who seem to be dedicated to the beautiful of music. Mm-hmm. There's a creepy undercurrent with him, I think. Not creepy per se, but certainly creepy to Bill. There's a queer subtext to Nick Nightingale. First of all, in the first scene, I mean, he leaves his wife to go talk to his old friend. That's what allows his wife to be seduced by the old man. But second of all, there's a really great line in that jazz scene. He asks who he plays with, or like, they're talking about the musicians he's playing with, and Nick Nightingale says, I'll play with anybody. And there's a weird sexual thing going on there, and especially when you, as I talk about the rhymes, there's so many weird homophobic things going on, too. And especially if this is Bill's dream, he certainly has some anxiety about homosexuality, and that's why it's also perfect casting to have Tom Cruise. You couldn't cast a better <laughs> anxious about homosexuality actor who's also a great actor. Then he also gets called a faggot by Luke Rose. They say he's playing for the pink team. 
And then he has this weird flirtation with the hotel concierge later, played by Alan Cumming. He has so many anxieties that he obviously has not dealt with in any way. <laughs> of his wife desiring other men, of being a cuckold, of being potentially gay. You know, I don't think that's text, but that's subtext. There's something in him that is has some anxiety about desires. If he doesn't know his wife's desires, does he actually know his own desires? What would that mean for him? What does he even want? And as we see him go on this journey, he doesn't know what he wants. He tries to get a prostitute, and he decides he sort of goes away from it. He gets seduced by the daughter of one of his patients, and he's not interested. This young girl with the costume, she doesn't necessarily seduce him, but certainly you can tell she's interested in him. He has all these options, and he just doesn't know what he wants, which is really interesting for a movie all about desire, that the main character doesn't really know what he desires or what to desire or what even desire means. Yeah, so as soon as his marriage is put in question, Bill begins to realize in various ways that desire might be not nice and lawful, but instead, as Freud said, polymorphously perverse, chaotic, destructive even answering a question or removing an uncertainty or satisfying a doubt will not quite satisfy what can remove the sting of the slap. And yes, that's the example of the dude bros, these low-class vulgarians who insult him because he is rich and dressed well and so they question his sexuality. This attack on reputation goes together with the rumor that he hears from Nick Nightingale. Nick was playing blindfolded at the orgy, but it slipped briefly and he saw something he wasn't supposed to have seen. That's how desire came into him, and it's too juicy a story not to tell. Bill only heard of it, and nevertheless desire came in to him by the ear. And this of course is connected with Alice's story. That hearing, again, exercised not his perception, but his fantasy. His imagination runs away with him, and indeed in the taxi, on his way to the costume shop, he's already fantasizing about his wife and this Navy lieutenant. It's gotten a hold of him inside. And this has to do with our society as a whole, of course. One name for somebody who isn't manly is effeminate, woman-like. This cannot but relate to sexuality at some level. Why has a rumor about his sexuality been dogging Tom Cruise for 30 years? It's because he's so young and pretty, so he doesn't seem like an active manly man. He seems like a passive man because everybody's in love with him. Right. There's a male sort of anxiety about being gay and therefore not being manly and wedding those two things, which of course are not wedded. Camille Paglia has one of the greatest lines that actually the true masculinity is embodied by gay men who can just have sex whenever they want. I mean, I don't think that's necessarily true, but I think she's getting at something. She says, for gay men, the altar is anywhere you kneel. There's this idea that heterosexual men have this anxiety that if they're gay, that means they're not manly enough. But going back to what I said before, I'm not sure if you can ever know exactly what you desire, which is where that anxiety comes from. But if you go ahead in the plot and get to the orgy, which inevitably is where he arrives after he gets the costume. I think one of the things that you have to ask is, at what point is the movie a dream and at what point is it not? And I think it's probably the most boring question you can ask, but I do think you have to sort of wrestle with it. Not that you have to give an answer, because I think there's clearly not an answer, but the way in which our dreams determine reality and uh, reality determines our dreams almost to the degree that 
we don't really have any agency in this decision. That reality determines our dreams and our dreams determines our reality. We are sort of in between those things being determined. We sort of think of dreams as an escape from our reality, but in a way, maybe reality is the escape from our dreams. And so the level at which this is a dream orgy or a real orgy, the level at which that costume or shop is real or, or imagined, even the woman, the patient's daughter, who, you know, lusts after him, feels very dreamlike. She even says, this is so unreal. And so by this point in the night, the time of dreams and nightmares, I think you have to wrestle with that we don't know what is real and what's imagined, but that maybe it doesn't even matter. So his settled middle-class way of life is becoming unsettled. You mentioned his patient's daughter who tries to seduce him in the house where her father lies dead. That's the insanity that eroticism can lead to. And Bill, who is not much of a lover himself, is especially exposed to such spectacles, to seeing people act this way. Her father's dead. The woman is asking herself, what even is the point? However respectable or moral you could be, you end up a corpse. That's why she desperately tries to make an erotic pass at Tom Cruise. And just like immoral behavior disrupts public life and makes you stop believing in reality, so also the other impact of Eros on imagination makes you ask yourself, well, it's this way, but it could be this other way, couldn't it? Well, in the element of imagination, everything that is this way could be some other way. Doubt and uncertainty are necessarily part of the imagination. So the story mixes the exclamation mark that accompanies perception. We see and recognize the things in the world that Bill walks around through. But the question mark of imagination also is there, making you ask yourself, what does this mean? How does this add up with the other things? Where is it all going? The emergence of doubles in the narrative that make you ask yourself, am I remembering this right? Did I hear and see this right? Is Kubrick's way of showing you how tricky the imagination is and getting you to ask yourself, how does soul even work? Our capacity to perceive, to imagine, to think about things. Right. Somewhere in between public life and your soul is the wife, Alice. How many men do not define themselves by their wives? She's the best thing in my life. She gives my life meaning. Best thing that ever happened to me. Well, what if that were to go away? Who would these people be then? What does it even mean for them to be themselves? Are they themselves with or without the someone else that is the wife? Bill apparently never had to face this question before, and now that he has to face it, it's threatening to cripple him. So why would this tempt him now? Why would he be willing to risk the corruption he keeps seeing around him? Well, he's trying to become the man that his wife would desire in the way that she told in her story. In his imagination, he has a rival he has to imitate, and this is why all this questioning of his sexuality now hurts him. The orgy is the school of Eros from Bill's point of view, since only there can the opposite of middle class sex be learned. <laughs> all yeah. he wants is to not be passive, and his response to that is to be passive. I mean, he's passive the entire night. Certainly, obviously, Kubrick is not doing this because it's a movie that came out the same year, but I think thinking about Tom Cruise in 1999, when he gives his two best performances, you have Eyes Wide Shut, where he's the passive puckle, and you have Magnolia, where he's the active let. Both are playing on Tom Cruise not really being either. He's sort of that pretty boy in between. He's kind of a handsome debonair playboy, 
but he's certainly not scary or creepy in the way that his character is in Magnolia, and he's also not completely passive or almost asexual or, like, desireless as he is in Eyes Wide Shut, but both are playing with him in opposite directions, because in Magnolia, he is nothing but active. He's constantly just fighting when he's on stage, when he's being interviewed, even when he's with his dad, and he cries at the end. Like, it's him giving up, but it's also it's an active response, I think, rather than him just sort of sitting there. Whereas in Eyes Wide Shut, he's passive the entire time. He wants to be active, but he can't, he can never get there when he's at the orgy, even after the orgy, when he does start seeming like he's almost being active because he's trying to investigate. What I love, if you move ahead in the plot, you know, he's obviously go through a few things where he's trying to figure out whether it was her that sacrificed herself at the party and all that. You then get to Ziegler calling on him. Bill has spent the whole final day looking for answers. It's him at his most active. They warn him away with a note. They say, give up your inquiries, which are completely useless. And he continues searching. So he is being active in some way. He goes to the morgue, all this stuff. And then he goes to Ziegler. And Ziegler tells him he was at the party. He knows about what's happened in the last day. And if he told Bill the names of the people at the party, he doesn't think he would sleep so well. Suddenly, straight back to being passive, leaves it there, doesn't ask him who. You would think the next question would be who. Who's there? Right? Because that's the nature of human curiosity. Bill goes straight back to being passive, gives up his inquiries. And I think that then helps us see in starker contrast what happens at the very end of the movie when they go shopping. Because we have to ask ourselves, is he giving up on his inquiries? Or are they finally seeing the truth? He confesses to his wife everything that's happened. So now they've both had some sort of confession, right? But they then sort of say, well, now we know. Now we have our eyes open. But it's not as hunky-dory as that makes it sound. The older man says at the very beginning to Alice, marriage makes deception a necessity for both partners. In the end, I think we have to question whether they're actually getting away from the deceptions of their marriage, which they claim to be doing, or is this supposed honesty just another deception? Thinking that they understand each other, which was the problem in the first place. Bill thought he understood his wife. Well, now that he knows this fantasy, that doesn't mean he understands. They seem to be in possession of something, of some closure, good feeling. They still love each other. You know, I think one of the greatest little moments in the movie is when the mask appears next to his bed. Even with the confession, the mask remains. And the mask chooses us. And I think that's somewhere what the movie is about. We can't get rid of our deceptions. And even admitting our deceptions is a deception because we think we're coming clean. But desire and fantasy are so much deeper than that that we can't even begin to sort of understand them much less relay them to someone else. Yes, you're right. This is very much a marriage in trouble, and the film does not offer any kind of solution to this. It only articulates the problem that they're supposed to deal with. In the beginning, Bill didn't want to talk about any problems, only Alice did. She had a complaint to make. That's what started all this, whereas he wanted to say, I'm the man here, and as a man, I'm reassuring you, this is fine. It's just that you know what you're like when you drink or when you smoke pot. Well, why does she do that? These people are yuppies, especially him, but they also have this other hippie side. She smokes pot and it makes her want to complain. In some way, she wants to escape middle class life. 
into aristocracy, into her fantasy for the arts, and into this notion of sophistication, and that gets them into a trouble that they cannot get out of. The change is, at the end, it's her reassuring him instead. It is he who is now fearful, worried that maybe something has happened that's not going to work out. Alice is far the more erotic of the two, and this is also why she's better at dealing with desire. But Bill is the more intensely moral of the two, and therefore the one who understands that marriage rests on its sacredness. It is an oath you take. A promise you make without which nothing else is really all that reliable since, as you put it, we have so little control, so much is up to change that we don't quite know what's dream and what's reality. The law of marriage is not a solution to the problem of jealousy, it's the transformation of the problem of jealousy into its own solution. The laws publicly assert that love is now a matter of justice, a man has a right to his wife's affection and nobody else has that right. She breached that public order by bringing in this private matter, a fantasy, and it's not clear that there's any going back now. Bill is competing with a fantasy man in his own head who is more erotic than he is, and this is making him incredibly angry. Now, the big literary reference in the movie is Fidelio, the password for the orgy. Fidelio, of course, means faithful, but it is the name of Beethoven's only opera, which he had first named Leonor after the female protagonist who has to save her husband from jail by impersonation. This is an Enlightenment political drama, and it's not obvious how Eyes Wide Shut itself is a political movie, but as I said, Bill is looking for his wife in a certain sense to save him, that is to say to save their marriage at the end, and a masked woman is there to save him from the orgy scene itself, where he stands to be imprisoned or is somehow endangered. So that's the most obvious parallel between the opera and the movie. The stranger parallel might be this. Fidelio would seem to be about how love is the solution to a political problem, whereas Eyes Wide Shut seems to be about how love is the cause of political problems, what gets these elites to go completely insane. The orgy that started as a fantasy presented by his friend Nick corresponds in Bill's experience to the fantasy that started as his wife Alice's story. In one case we have this high contrast glossy black and white fantasy Bill has of his wife being ravished by the lieutenant. In this other case you see the colorful, very aestheticized orgy where naked young women are ravished by these men dressed as aristocrats. Now you might not think that an orgy could be a moral education, but Bill is a moral man and the fact that he is not particularly interested in the orgy shows that all he needed was relief, he needed to get this out of his head. On the other hand, the fact that all these women are not his wife so he doesn't have to be obsessive about this form of desire anymore leads him into trouble because he's walked into somebody else's fantasy, this strange elite that is trying their hardest to abandon middle-class morality because they feel it has failed them and instead they're trying to reconstruct the orgies of a decadent aristocracy to assert their freedom from America. 
And yes, you are right that Bill responds to this in a strangely passive way. He knows that this is immoral, but he doesn't do much about it. He investigates when he feels there is dangerous stuff happening, when people are being hurt, maybe some girl was murdered. All that does get to him, but not that much because he cannot step out of his character. This is not a story about a character being transformed, but about a character being revealed. And Bill is more passive than active. He's not that manly a guy and that cannot really change. He's not going to become some truth teller or crusader saving America or morality or his sense of pride from this corrupting elite. Really all he wants is out. Fear sets limits to his curiosity in a way in which repugnance had not. And it's precisely because his moral character holds him back somewhat that we get a sense of what is involved in this activity at the orgy. The masks remove for the most part facial recognition, that is to say recognizing who a person is. They reduce us to bodies without biographies. That seems to be what is desired, an escape from the life where you have a biography because people recognize you by your face. Turning into a beast and treating others as beasts seems to be what is desired here. And this is how he thinks about his wife's desire. And this is why it's scaring him and making him angry at the same time. The orgy scene puts together the two things that had tempted Bill and Alice respectively. That is to say splendid aristocratic men and wild young girls. And it reveals that behind respectability there's a kind of monstrous desire that reduces everybody, however famous, to a writhing body. Now Bill doesn't learn almost any of this because of the kind of man that he is. All he learns is that he should be afraid and stay away. But we can learn about this stuff. The entire point of revealing in drama something that cannot be revealed since it is private, since it is hidden in our souls and in the precincts of the rich, is to tell people not to turn respectability into a concealment for violence against innocence. The most shocking secret revealed by the orgy is that all these women are consenting to their own debasement. As you said, it's not at all clear that anything illegal is happening there, anything violent. That's the true shock. The revelation of the full chaos of eroticism does away with the bourgeois notion that consensual sex is all there is and this is how life will be conducted. What in one public understanding is seen as individual liberation is revealed in this other private way as full enslavement. This is what was disclosed in the initial scene with the prostitute overdosing on drugs and the power of dream and death enclosed in the drugs that belongs to the rich man Ziegler, who turns out to have been at the origin to be part of this secret elite. But I, I think what's most interesting about the movie for me is, is I don't know if the prostitutes are any more debased than anyone else. I mean, everyone is sort of debased. The desire is itself somewhat debasing. We're all these sort of animals. Obviously, to different degrees. I'm not saying, like, no one does anything wrong or, you know, some nihilistic nothing matters viewpoint about it, because obviously the Epstein scandal is enraging, as it should be. But there is something interesting about how desire is debasing on its own. And so my question would be, you, in the end, is it saying that fidelity is the most important thing? Because I'm not exactly sure that that's what it's saying. I mean, certainly I think that you could read it that way, this sort of moralistic reading that, you know, where they come together at the end and their marriage is going to be saved because they now know the importance of fidelity and they're being honest with each other and saying this is our reality. But the truth is, no dream is just a dream, as they say at the end. 
I don't think there's a happy ending, is I guess what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's a sad ending yes, or indeed, a tragic that's, ending. You're right, this cannot be a really happy ending because it reveals too much about the fragility of our loves and of our quest for happiness and doesn't offer enough by way of hope that this will work out. This is far more like a late 19th century French novel than it is like a Hollywood film. So the importance of fidelity isn't a guarantee of happiness, but one of innocence. And once that is breached and instead you have experience, it's difficult to even remember the promise of happiness, which was fairly innocent to begin with. This is the difference between the dreadful and the sordid halves of the movie. Right, and certainly that's the transition. It's not an accident that the only scene that has a moment of grace is this scene of greatest danger and greatest debasement. The two go together. To say nothing else, the self-satisfied successful Bill of the first half of the movie wouldn't even have conceived of the notion that he might need saving. In the only scene without Christmas lights, by the way, or one of the only scenes without Christmas yes. lights. That's very much a signal that we're not in Kansas anymore. In a way, this isn't America, what's happening right here. Bill tries to return to the villa where the orgy took place, only to find it deserted with a warning left for himself. There's something magical or mythical or story-like and dream-like about the whole affair. And he got there by taxi in the middle of the night, outside of town, in this forest. It's very story-like. Even getting access to this experience seems to be very difficult. Uh -huh. And here this mysterious woman recognizes him, although he doesn't recognize her, although he assumes she must be Mandy, the prostitute he had saved from an overdose at Ziegler's Christmas party. Because who else would know him? And in a way that makes sense, because her sacrifice would suggest that she wants to save him as moral, as innocent, to keep him away from this debasing experience, as gratitude for what he had done for her. Or it's a performance, which is what Ziegler says. Of course, if we think of the speeches and the images in the movie as in some sense evidence, it is contradictory evidence and you have to choose which ones you believe. All we can do is lay out the evidence. And this brings us to the second political element at the orgy. It's not just the debasement the superiors inflict on the inferiors under the guise of consent. The ritual there points to paganism because it has the form of a black mass. People there are chanting an Eastern Orthodox Christian liturgy in Romanian, but spoken backwards. Right. So this is the theological correlative to the political problem of out-of-control elites. These people want to do away with God. They're doing guilty things on purpose to remove the guilt feeling. This is tied up with eroticism because we do have a notion that pleasure is transgressive. Indeed, this is part of liberation ideology in our times. What if it doesn't lead to happy egalitarianism, but to murderous inegalitarianism? This is what I meant when I said we're not in Kansas anymore. This may not be America we're looking at. So, glad you said we're not in Kansas anymore, because I do think, you know, there are interesting parallels to Wizard of Oz, too, and that everything's about going over the rainbow. And on the surface, ostensibly, Bill, like Dorothy Gale, finds out that there's no place like home. But I don't think that's the message of the movie. I don't think it's that easy. Yeah, so there's a difference between protagonist and movie. Exactly. There may be no happy home left. As we saw from the beginning, Bill and his wife Alice are actually very different people. She knows things he doesn't, and what he learns is not how to be like her, but that he should give up his attempts to become an erotic man and turn into a moralist, fully. His confession to his wife is the climax of his moral impulses. Eroticism confused him. In the latter half of the movie, he gets clarity by turning to morality. 
He tries to find his friend Nick again and find out whatever happened, who are these secret elite people, but he's disappeared. He tries to find out about the girl who saved him and finds a girl dead in the morgue and he thinks they're the same person, which as you pointed out, it's not clear that they are, but they might be, and that's the impulse of morality connecting the two for him. His innocence and her sacrifice match. So also his all-American attempt to stand on his rights, to return to the villa and to be boisterous or angry or claim justice. It doesn't work out, but that's morality trying. And it's the fear that morality isn't fully working out for him that leads him to confession, which is also a moral thing. If you can't do the good, at least you should speak the truth. But his moralism is so passive still. You're right. Well, that's his character. How is he going to escape that, whatever changes occur in the story? Not even his belief in a redemptive sacrifice or the power of redemption in confession could change that since he's still stuck being who he is, as we all are thousands of years after Christ. Faith is not a promise of the end of human nature. But in his case specifically, what he has learned is to keep secrets if now together with his wife, which is what the problem was that she got him into in the first place, sharing a secret. They were in some way looking for glamour and the desires that are exalted by splendor. And he has found corruption and in a way guilt. He's such a moralist that he's willing to do the time without having really done the crime, as you pointed out. He can no longer really claim innocence. So these are the ways in which the movie and the protagonist really are different. For one, Ziegler the boss is not punished, nor is anybody else who is involved in the conspiracy. There's not a lot of justice on offer despite our desires. For another, Alice learns something else than what Bill did. She started with a complaint, he ends with a complaint in the form of a confession. He started by reassuring her in an ignorant way, she ends by reassuring him in a knowing way. Now she knows that she has to deal with him as he is and she cannot ask of him to understand more than he understands. She pushed him into this and sees what has come of it. But I'm not sure this means they're gonna love each other all that happily. Remember that he says, I love you forever, because that's what we all want out of love, perfection, immortality. That's why marriage is for life. But she doesn't like that. She's not a moralist. She says, forever is a problem for me. She'll love him for a while, apparently, which might just point to the fact that we all end up dead, so love is mortal in that sense. Right. No, it's definitely not your hopeful thing. But I do want to say, when they're shopping, I mean, first of all, he goes for like a baby carriage. I think she goes for like a doll or a teddy. So there is also this indoctrinating the daughter into ideas of marriage. But you're right that there is this hesitancy on Alice's part to allow the certainty of forever. And Bill, as you, in your words, is trying to smuggle that forever back in, which I think is a great way to put it. Because if he's learned anything, he's learned to be more uncertain, but he still doesn't want to be. <laughs> and that's the truth. He still wants the forever even if he knows that it might be bullshit, he wants to say it. And she wants to not say it, and so there's that tension between the two of them, neither of which are actually right, because I'm not married, so what do I know? But I think marriage sort of depends on both of those lines, that it is forever, and it's also obviously not forever. I mean, in a time when divorce rate is whatever it is, and everything else, we know that marriage is not forever. So forever is, is an absurd thing to want and claim, and yet I don't think you can have a marriage that doesn't at least depend on that superficially as a crutch. But that final bit about needing to go home and fuck to me such a strange ending, because yes, on some level, there's a happiness to it, it's a Molly Bloom affirmation, it's a fuck I said yes, we will fuck, and all that, but it's 
also super mundane, really resigned. It's this almost mechanical thing. We need to get over this, so what should we do? We should have sex. There's no passion. There's no spontaneity. Something that's what you should do is never actually wedded to your desires. Desires are generally what you shouldn't do, right? It's the things that you want that you can't have. So this weird making sex into something that's almost not desirable, yes, it brings them together, and that's good, because I think they do both want to be together in some way. So there is a happiness in that, that they found a way to make peace. But there's a definite sadness to how cold and calculated that is. For sexual congress to be that inhuman is maybe the real tragedy of the movie. And so for me, it's neither a defense of nor an assault upon marriage or fidelity or love or any of these things, because this is what love is. This is what marriage is. This is what a contract is. This is what fidelity is. It's, it's constantly having to deal with the potential for breaking it, both yourself and the other, and recognizing that uncertainty in yourself and in the other. I'm not sure how much they recognize that is my question. That's what I'm saying about the mask that appears next to his bed. It remains. And so even if they have eyes wide open now, maybe their eyes are still wide shut. Maybe thinking that your eyes are wide open is exactly the problem. You're very much right. This is a marriage in trouble. And it's not a happy end for us to conclude our conversation on. But this is not a happy movie. <laughs> Bill eventually gets what he seems to have wanted in the beginning. That his wife's desire be for him and only for him. Well, that's partly eroticism, but that's partly morality. As you put it, it's a willful assertion, and it doesn't seem like it'll make for happiness. And this describes our times. People all the time talk about, and in a public way, spice up your sex life, keep it interesting, as though willful playfulness is going to make for happiness. It's not. It's just our brand of disappointment. And to Kubrick's credit, he doesn't show them having sex. He shows them talking about potentially doing it. Which, if you go with what you've seen throughout the whole movie, you've just spent almost three hours with these characters, and especially with Bill, I think you have to assume that they're actually going to go home and not fuck, because the whole movie has been coitus interrupted, never actually fulfilling the desire. Saying, I want this thing, whether it's actually a real desire or a sort of playing along to a desire to try and figure out what you want, but always never quite attaining it. And so I love that Kubrick, I mean, is masterful enough to not give us what I think a lot of people would have wanted, especially that it was filled as an erotic thriller with this sexy couple having sexy sex. You know, everyone would have been happy. Oh, yes, we finally got them to lay down together. I like that it withholds that. That is the movie. The movie is that withholding. Yes, and it's also a fitting end for Kubrick's career who constantly did that, both disappointing the movie audience in general, and also the clever audience that rather idolized him. He made rather misanthropic movies, but they revealed important things that we might not notice otherwise. And so if you enjoy the beauty and the craft and the mastery, there's also the possibility of learning all these other things. So I hope we have persuaded our audience to watch the movie again and to reconsider it. And Tyler, thank you so much for joining me. Let's do The Shining next time. Awesome. Thank you. I look forward to it. Shining, of course, with a much happier ending. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good point. Well, hold the bit, Tyler. Um, yep, you too.